Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. It's Zach flying solo today. Prepare for the anarchy terrain, but it's going to be good anarchy because we're going to be looking at the topic of disability in the Tudor period. To talk me through it, I am joined by Philippa Vincent Connolly, who's a writer, broadcaster, historian and consultant. She's also, however, passionate about disability rights and is currently doing a PhD looking at disability in the Tudor period. So the perfect person to talk me through all of this. She's published a new book on just that. And that's what we're going to be discussing. So Philippa, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Hi, Zach. It's lovely to be here. And it's great to talk to you about this this topic, because as you said, I am really passionate about it. And it's a, it's an area of history that's just not discussed because it's all often seen as very taboo or it's something that people don't really want to talk about. So it's great to be here. Yeah, it's something that we've been picking up on a little bit, actually. We did um, a session on disability in the ancient period with the archaeologist Sonia Zakjewski and it's nice to be kind of carrying it through and looking at this theme as it sort of changes through time. So let's start inevitably kind of at the top. We've talked before on this show about things like the genesis of the freak show at courts during the the Stuart period. Do we see anything in terms of exploitation of those who are deemed inverted commas different um, back in in the Tudor period? Actually, what surprised me about looking at the the 16th century is that, no, they weren't. They were more cherished than anything else, which really, really surprised me. I think that the idea of um, exploitation comes in where Shakespeare starts to write about characters who have deformities and disabilities. And I think that's when it changes in the Elizabethan period 
where we get that sort of idea of exploitation and disabled people making fun of themselves and making fun of other people. And it's all about the drama and the acting in the theatre. Whereas the beginning of the, the Tudor period, we have disabled people being looked after all over the place in their communities, at court, in their families. And it's it's part of a religious way of life to be charitable and to look after these people that are more disadvantaged than others. So that's what surprised me most about it. I suppose in some respects, perhaps, is there a precedent now that we are aware that Richard III very famously had, you know, his own disability with curvature of his spine. You know, you've got the guy right at the top of English society who has that deformity and is able to rule for a period. Yes, okay, obviously, you know, civil war, uh, the Wars of Roses, and so on. And so, you know, obviously you get spins on these things. But is there perhaps this sense that, you know, disability doesn't necessarily need to be the thing that holds you back, not least because, you know, there are other things that might hold you back in life, such as your your position where you're born into society. Well, I had a discussion with Philippa Langley about Richard III, and she argued with me and said that the scoliosis wasn't seen as a disability. And because it wasn't so obvious um, that Richard was able to um, be the last one of the last kings to die in battle, to be a great horseman, to to do all the things that he did and still be able to rule. So it really depends how a disability limits you physically as to whether it's categorised as a disability as such, because the Tudors were. Very clever, but they also um, simplified things. They We had no categorization of disability in the 16th century. The Tudors just literally described what they saw. So if you walked with a limp, you were lame, you were a cripple. If you had um, problems with your eyesight, then you were blind. You know, if you couldn't hear properly, then you were deaf. It was literally that basic way of describing things. So all these syndromes and things that people have now, they would have still existed then, but they wouldn't have been named and you wouldn't have been put into a box as being a person with that particular problem. Do you see what I mean? So you either had a physical disability, you had a mental disability in terms of being mad and you'd be put into bedlam, or you had an intellectual learning disability. So it's those three categories and that was literally it. Yeah, I can't help but feel as somebody with my own kind of hidden disability the the challenges of having to deal with that and and really not having a clue what it is about your body that just means that you can't do what other people are doing um it's but that but that's the same that's the same now because until you actually go under a consultant and you get a diagnosis for something then you don't know you've necessarily got that problem like with myself when I was training to be a teacher um I just always assumed that I was thick at maths. It was like looking at Chinese lettering on a blackboard, trying to decipher it all. And I couldn't, I couldn't work it out for the life of me. And I had to do the QTS skills test to be a teacher. And it's a bit like going to a driving test centre and doing the theory test. 18 questions come up. You have so many seconds to answer the question, then it disappears and you've got to get so many right. After my fourth attempt, the Open University said to me, right, go and get tested. Let's see if you've got any issues around maths. 
And I thought, God, I'm in my 40s now. They're never going to find anything. So I went for all the tests and they said, oh, you've got a big IQ for such and such, which is why I can do all the MA, PhD and everything. And then in other things with processing, with maths and, and things like that, you're quite low on, you know, and you're in the spectrum for some things. And I thought, well, that just makes so much sense because I just had an assumption that I just, I don't know, I wasn't any good at anything. But until you actually get somebody telling you you've got X, Y and Z, it's not obvious. And I think that probably would have been the same for the Tudors then. You would have had people with all these different things going on for them, learning disabilities. But because the medical knowledge was so limited, you wouldn't get labelled. You wouldn't get appropriate support like we get now. So it's a completely different way of looking at disability then. Does that make sense? It does completely. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I personally, I'm quite fortunate. It's something that runs in the, well, fortunate relative concept, but I have that knowledge. It's something that runs through the family. So you can kind of start to work out how you, you deal with it and, and, and process it. But yeah, mm. this, this sense of the unknown just kind of makes you aware of just the fact that what you can do and what somebody else can do is, is just different somehow without really knowing why. I want to talk, we talked about Richard III, I want to talk about Henry VIII, because there's an obvious and interesting story here, isn't there? You know, he starts off as this Renaissance prince, he's very active into sport, um, ends up kind of casting himself as a very kind of elegant figure, and then becomes disabled himself, famously as a result of, you know, an issue with his leg after an accident out riding. So how is that regarded at court? Is this about you know, Henry VIII's power within the court and the fact that, you know, his authority can't be questioned. So let's let's just ignore the fact that, you know, his, his leg is in a really horrific state uh, by the end of his life. Or do they kind of see this as a, you know, okay, so yeah, issue with his leg, let's just move on. I think it's probably a mishmash of all sorts of ideas and attitudes. I think they probably would have gossiped about it behind his back, behind closed doors in their privy chambers, in their bedrooms and things. And said, oh, have you, have you seen Henry today? I smelt him before I could actually see him coming down the corridor, you know. Um, and I think that the, the Tudors were quite accepting. I think they were quite supportive and encouraging. I think that would have been the best way to go because they would have wanted to stay in Henry's good books. For example, he had a, um, an accident playing tennis when he was a little, little bit younger before his main jousting accidents. And I think he had a swollen ankle and foot where he was walking around the court with one slipper on his foot, a velvet slipper and a normal um, leather shoe on his other foot and what happened was was that courtiers actually copied him with this fashion they'd have one slipper on one foot and a leather shoe on another foot to sort of make him feel like it was like just an everyday normal thing to do so I think I think Overall, they would have been quite supportive but I think Henry would have had in the back of his mind all the time that having you know, slowly going downhill in terms of his mobility and, you know, having to use a walking cane, um, having to um, be pushed around in a wheelchair. He wouldn't have want, wanted his courtiers to see it. That would have been the parameters of his very, very loyal privy staff who looked after him intimately in his in the back behind the back stairs, if you see what I mean. They were the ones that des designed and set about 
there's getting the Stanner stairlift to work for him, the wheel and pulley system to get him up and down the stairs at Whitehall. They were the ones that got him the walking sticks with the whistles on. So if ever he fell over, he could blow the whistles and the coaches would come and they'd help to pick him up and all that kind of thing. Um, but I think he would have kept it as quiet as possible, you know, or out of sight as possible because he didn't want, want it to come across that, he didn't have the confidence to rule because he was physically, you know, deteriorating. And there's there's a um, an account in Henry's letters and papers which talks about him being pushed around by one of his privy servants um, and an ambassador happens to see him. And he's like, you can imagine him hiding behind his hand like, oh, I, you know, I don't really want to be seen. I don't want people to see that I'm in my wheelchair kind of thing where what he should have done was perhaps embraced the mobility aids that he had and thought, well, hang on a minute. I'm, you know, in my 50s now, where in the Tudor period, you didn't survive that much longer in age. You know, very rarely did you. And so therefore, you know, it's enabling him to continue ruling, continue being in control of everything. Yes, he's got help, but does that really matter? But it's all about perceptions and what European courts would have thought of him, you know, with disabilities and things like that. But then Charles um, in France and Spain, sorry, Charles V in Spain was being pushed around in a wheelchair towards the end of his life as well. And King Francis in France was riddled with syphilis and things like that. So they're all, you know, being sort of taken through the medical issues that came along with old age in that period and the fact that Henry got his disabilities through sporting injuries was really no surprise because he was just, you know, that's what he did most of the time, especially in his, the early part of his reign. Does the kind of inverted commas fragility or potential fragility of kingship kind of blow on his mind there because you've had a civil war, you know, it's, it's one of those periods where up until very recently, the idea of who could sit on a throne was was very kind of fluid in the sense that, you know, you can have one person interchange them with another and so on. And that's ultimately the story of the War of the Roses, right? You know, who is the person that we decide we are going to put on this throne? So is there that fear? And I'm thinking also, you know, his obsession with need a male heir, secure the dynasty. Is that part of what plays on his mind when it comes to trying to cover this up? Well, Looking at it from the point of view of a disabled person myself, you know, for a long time in my life, I tried to ignore it, tried to pretend I wasn't disabled, even though visually when I walk along the road, it's very obvious that I am. And I can and it puts ideas and conceptions in people's minds about what you're like as a person if you've got a physical disability. And I'm sure Henry had that on his mind, you know, if he was walking along with a walking stick or if you could smell his putrid leg before you saw him, you know, he knew that people had ideas about that and would think, well, you know, he surely he's going to die soon. But obviously with the, the treason laws, they couldn't actually say it out loud. So he had to come across as this virile, physical um, person right up until the end, as far as he possibly could, you know, and still cope with, the pain he might have obviously have been in, and we know how um, his mood swung towards the end of his reign from being affable and gracious one minute to being a tyrant the next. 
Anybody who suffered with any form of pain for a prolonged length of time will know how that affects your personality and your character if you're dealing with those kinds of issues. So to me, it's no wonder that Henry sort of was like this and swung like a pendulum, you know, with his courtiers in terms of what he thought of them and, and what he did to them, you know, when they didn't do what he wanted. So, you know, I think his his ideas and his thoughts would have been an expression of how he coped with his physical challenges. I know that's do, quite a profound way to look at it, but, you know, it's to me, it seems quite an obvious thing. Do we know about the knock-on effect for, you know, others, other disabled people, particularly at the top of the societal structure, you know, what their lives were like, the extent to which, you know, a, a growing awareness of the situation of Henry kind of had a trickle-down impact and a, a great kind of sense of understanding. Do we have any kind of handle on all of that? Well, I think it's going back to the idea of religion, which sort of ran like a silken thread through the 16th century as being really, really important to how people live their lives, whatever side of faith you're on, whether you're a Catholic or a Lutheran. Um, and it was all about charity. And it, there's um, a portrait of Thomas More and his family where there is um, a gentleman in there who has a distinct learning disability called Henry Pattinson. And he looks very, very similar in his appearance to Henry VIII, funnily enough. But he's taken into Thomas More's family to become like a member of his family. He's looked after like he's a son or a brother and he's educated. He sits around the dinner table with the family. They discuss politics and religion of the day, issues of the day. Um, Henry Patterson also advises Thomas More about signing the oath or not signing the oath. You know, they are an integral part of people's lives and, Noble families would have taken disabled people in and looked after them because it was seen as the right thing to do in terms of religious ideas, doing good works. Erasmus was very um, into looking after disabled people. He wrote to Thomas More about all these humanist ideas as well, which Thomas More then took on with the likes of looking after Henry Patterson. And I think that would have been that would have run throughout all these noble families. Thomas More would have been an example to people at court having a natural fall in his family home. So there were there were things like that. And, and it was sort of part of society's idea was that predominantly families should look after people that were less fortunate than, than themselves. And if they couldn't be looked after by their families, then you might have some of the abbeys and the monasteries step in if they weren't a closed order. But um, obviously, when the Reformation hit um, in the mid 1530s, then things began to change, help sort of disintegrated from that point of view. And then you would have the building of almshouses. Some were specific to things like leprosy. Um, some were specific to just poor people or old age, but they weren't all over the place. It, it was a gradual thing that was brought in. And um, the welfare state was very, it was um, a real small concept at that time. You had Cromwell who was trying to bring in poor laws, which weren't sort of like set in stone. 
it wasn't until Elizabeth's reign that you had the poor laws coming to being where it said, you know, specifically, we're going to help the poor, we're going to help the elderly, we're going to help the disabled. So it was very much of, you know, the communities will look after them, their families will look after them. It was only the very few lucky ones who would go and live with nobility or would go and live in a royal household, for example. And I mean, we're talking about trickle down effects for those within the merchant classes amongst the peasantry. Is there a widespread awareness that, you know, there, there may be structures that you can call upon or is this a, a you know, review on a case by case basis and you, you just try and find your, your own way through? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think basically they intended for disabled people to stay within their towns and communities because we all know that if you were caught begging or you were a vagabond, or you were pretending to be disabled to get charitable monies, then you were either moved on or you were punished. You know, you were whipped or branded, and in some cases you might have been hung. So I think, generally speaking, people would try to stay within their communities, or they would look for work elsewhere, make sure they had work before they went anywhere else, if they were sensible. But obviously ordinary people's lives these first-hand accounts weren't often recorded because disabled people were seen to the experience of disabled people wasn't seen as a part of everyday life and not important to record so this is why we've got so few accounts of of ordinary people we've got accounts of people like will summer jane fall people like that because it's recorded in household accounts what clothes were bought for them, what um, leather work was bought for Will Summer's horses, the geese that were bought by Queen Catherine Parr for, for Jane to herd around the gardens in the palaces. There were um, accounts of Jane Fall's head being shaved, obviously for cleanliness and religious ideas. You know, so we had those sorts of things, but the, the window onto that sort of side of life was only for these people who were in noble families and within the royal household. It's very few sort of times you come across what we'd call everyday people like us, you know, their narratives. Um, there's one um, particular case that I came across of a cook to the Privy Council called John Lawrence, who sent a petition to Henry VIII because he'd been working for the king for 24 years. 
and he was becoming lame with gout, obviously, because he'd been testing his own food and had quite a rich diet. Obviously, the gout started creeping up on him and he couldn't stand and walk around anymore and do all the things he was doing. So he sent a petition to Henry VIII to say, look, you know, can I retire? Will you give me a pension? I can't do this job anymore. We don't know the reply that Henry made to that petition, but there's a record of him, for example. So, you know, it's a case of going through the archives, you know, literally letter by letter, page by page, trying to find the stories of these people. And it takes an awful long time to do that. I'm also interested in, you know, the almshouses and and disability, hospitals tackling disability. What can you tell us about how they try to, inverted commas, treat people with disabilities because knowing what we know about Tudor medicine not being particularly advanced you could imagine all kinds of horror stories Mm. well it's it's a mixed bag because you had people like Richard Napier who would record all his um, accounts with his patients and I haven't gone through all those accounts you know meticulously yet that's going to be part of my PhD to do that Um, But it's looking at his accounts and see how he might treat people. Um, There are things like, you know, the humanists would look at things, how religion affected people. So if a parent, for example, gave birth to a deformed child, then it was considered that that parent might have looked at something sinful while the mother was pregnant or was involved in satanic worship of some kind or might have been a witch or there was all the superstitious side of of the medical profession at that time as well as the normal everyday what they knew of people physically in front of them with the four humours and all of that. So and you know, for somebody born with quite a bad deformity or being born premature or something like that, then they probably wouldn't have survived anyway. So you might have, you would come across, I would say, people more with learning disabilities than really severe disabilities. But saying that, in the last couple of weeks, I've come across a book which has got illustrations of conjoined twins that lived um, at the end of the um, 16th century and they're actually drawn up on um, plates on illustrations and they survived until they were 10 years old but they would have been seen as like a a wonder as like a, a miracle but also you know also very oh we can't go near that that's not right kind of thing so the religious side had a very weird viewpoint towards disability. They were seen as something that shouldn't be touched, shouldn't be taken any notice of because they were slightly satanic. And then you had the other ideas of disabled people being cherished, looked after and thought of as being close to God because they would tell the truth and they had no agenda like some of the other courtiers around the king, for example, which is why Henry VIII trusted Will Summer the most and had him in his presence at the most sort of low points in his life, like after when Jane Seymour died, for example, because Will had no sort of, he didn't want to make himself um, better than any other courtier. He didn't want money, he didn't want to be well known. He just wanted to be a companion and a friend to the king. 
So that's what I liked about it. The fact that, I mean, I've, I've been around um, quite a lot of people with Down syndrome because my uncle used to run a community near to where we live. And they just come out with exactly what they want to say. So, I, you know, I'd walk into the lounge and, and one of them would say, oh, that's a nice dress you're wearing today. Or, oh, why, Philip, are you walking like that? And there's no filter. And this is what the Tudors loved about disabled people because they said exactly what was on their mind. And that, and that was it. And it was probably quite refreshing for people like Henry VIII to be spoken to like that, I should imagine. You can just imagine it, can't you? All these sort of slightly obsequious courtiers sort of grovelling and being, you know, whatever the Tudor equivalent is of Uriah Heap, sort of wringing their hands, oh, yes, sire, <laughs> three bags full, sire, sort of thing. And and then, as you say, this yeah. guy who just turns around and says, that sounds really dumb, don't do that. And and that kind <laughs> of sense of raw honesty kind of being really quite valuable mm. because actually all your advisors don't want to piss you off because they know what could happen if they, if you, um, if if they do so yeah, exactly really I, mean, I mean there were times there were times when Will did overstep the mark and he did say a, a few things about Anne Boleyn at times and um, Henry did scold him and make him go and sleep with his dogs in in the shed in the hay but um, he was never sent to the tower he never got that close to. Uh, to being imprisoned or anything like that because Henry would always forgive him if they had a bit of an argument or a bit of a spat or disagreement. I mean, so that was quite new, good. Uh, that's a whole new turn of phrase for in the doghouse, isn't it? Um, I half <laughs> wonder if that's where it comes from. Um, I don't know. We, we need a, somebody who well, that's, well, that's where the, the saying, um, you know, I've got a hunch because Will Summer had a slight curvature of his back. He had a hunch. Oh, I didn't know that. So I have an idea, I have a hunch. That's curious. Every day's a learning day. <laughs> let's let's talk about the law for a second. How does the law deal with disability in In a sudden flash it all comes clear. It's a Eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history. We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. In the Tudor period. They try and segregate people to the deserving poor and the non-deserving poor. So people who were pretending to be disabled to get money, you know, they would then be punished with what we said before or you'd have people who were genuinely disabled they would be giving given um, charitable money by guilds they would be um, encouraged to try and learn some sort of trade they would be encouraged to stay with their families perhaps try and do farm the land for example or do simple things like basket weaving and all those kinds of things to encourage them to be part of society and to contribute. There wasn't necessarily like today where you'd have certain amount of benefits given out to each disabled person. You'd have to go to the guilds and ask for specific support and help if you needed it. And this is where the charitable works and more wealthy families coming in to support 
you know, disabled people would would happen because you had people like Wolsey, for example, who had um, a fool called Patch, who he actually gave away to Henry VIII to try and stay in his favour. And Patch literally screamed the place down and kicked and scuffled when the guards tried to take him off to to, um, back to Henry VIII and away from Wolsey, for example. So it's because there's nothing it's not like today where you've got all these laws set out and you've got the equality act and and everything else there was nothing really in place it was just done on a need to know sort of a, a need to give sort of basis and you you'd go to you know the townsfolk and you'd say well so and so needs something and and see if they could help in that way so it's not until, like I said, in the late 1500s where Elizabeth tried to make sure that poor people were helped and had the almshouses and things like that, that definite support was, was put in place. And they they relied on the monasteries as well before the Reformation. So when that hierarchy was gone, that was another, another way that that charitable support stopped. I ask about the creeping of the stigma that you mentioned and, and how that kind of comes with sort of the arrival of Shakespeare. How I always wonder, do we put too much emphasis on, on Shakespeare? How significant is he? Is he, I guess what I'm kind of getting at is, is he a symptom of a change of attitudes or is he a driver of those change of attitudes because of the propaganda um, kind of elements to some of his work? What I find fascinating about Shakespeare is all the descriptions he made of Richard III, but nobody really knew 100% that Richard III had scoliosis as he had, not until we found his skeleton. So, you know, but he obviously must have had uh, a quite a strange gait. He must have, his posture must not have been like everybody else, which is why you know, people would have noticed these things, it would have been recorded. And obviously, you talk about propaganda. If you were seen to be deformed in any way, or if you were seen to not be sort of physically able, then anything derogatory is going to be pounced on as something bad, which is where we go back to Henry VIII, you know, if he was disabled, then he had no ability to rule. So it's all around the stigma, the superstition, the religious ideas of of that, that, you know, if you were born with a disability, then you weren't of God. And then there's also the other side of it, that if you were born with a disability, then you're already suffering purgatory on earth. And therefore you were considered quite important as well. So it was like a pendulum of ideas swinging back and forth between the two. There was no sort of definite or this is what we think of disability or, you know, there was no um, sort of idea that it was bad or good. It just existed. And that was it. It was a part of their everyday life experience. And I think that depending on where these disabled people were in society, you know, and who they were surrounded by depended on how they were perceived as well. And how severe their disability was. So, you know, if, if they if they were quite deformed and then they would have been seen as something very weird, very unusual. Let's lock them up in bedlam. Let's maybe just go and visit them and see, see them sat in 
their excrement, for example, and, you know, screaming and shouting and all that kind of thing is a form of entertainment. So you had all that as well. So it's a very, it's a very murky grey area. There's nothing, it's not black and white with it at all, with attitudes at all. Yeah, as is so often the case with the most interesting bits of history, nothing is clear cut and black and white, but it's just many kind of competing ideals and and competing, um, in some cases, prejudices and and in other cases not. It's, It's all, history is messy. That's that's my unprofound thought for the day. That history is, and above that's, what, all that's what makes it so interesting, doesn't it? Precisely, precisely. The fact that it's not just um, black and white and and simple. The, the the more you dig, the more the, the messier it becomes. Effectively, we were talking about yeah. um, how you know those those contrasts in perceptions. I'm I'm curious about the disabled who have a disability inflicted on them by war, you know, people who lose a limb, for example, um, as a result of time in combat. Do you see them being sort of put into a separate group by the Tudors as, you know, these people have this disability that's been given to them, not necessarily by God, but as a result of their service. And so therefore they should be treated in a particular way. I think there would have been specific Um, sort of hospitals and care for these people once they'd come back from war there were um, monies given to them for a certain amount of time to look after them and make sure that they were um, as best cared for as they possibly could be but there were so few what we'd call hospitals you know the our idea of hospitals now there were so few and far between that again they would be be looked after go back into their communities to be looked after or be in arms houses specific arms houses for you know people who'd been on the mary rose for example or had been soldiers you know there's accounts of people having their legs amputated and uh, it's it's very difficult to say what the survival rate would have been like for people with, you know, really horrific war injuries. I mean, I know of amputees that literally had their leg taken off and then three weeks later they were dead in our sort of modern times. So it's it's very difficult to say unless you've got first-hand accounts from these people, you can't really say what their lives would have been like. There's, there's records of what doctors did to people on the Mary Rose to... Um, sort of treat them but not what their life was like afterwards necessarily but I think that Elizabeth was reluctant to give away too much money to the soldiers that had survived she was more looking to continue to fund the war effort and the the able-bodied soldiers and and, and naval officers that were out there to continue whatever she needed to do um you know in that way militarily can I ask as well about your route into this, just as we kind of start to wrap this up? You know, what was it that made you want to look at disability during the Tudor period specifically? What was your hook in? Um, when I was very young, like a lot of people with an interest in the Tudors, you learn about the drama of Henry VIII and his six wives and the executions and all that kind of thing, like the soap opera that it is. And my grandparents used to take me to virtually every historical heritage site within an hour's drive of where we lived when I was young. 
And I would look at these people in these most magnificent portraits in these wonderful surroundings with this beautiful furniture and everything. And I think there's nobody there that represents me as a disabled person with cerebral palsy. And I used to think to myself, why is that? And I never really spoke to anybody about it. And then later on in life, I started as a teaching assistant. I, and I was in history lessons and I was helping to support um, special educational needs children in mainstream school with their GCSE history, for example. And they barely touched on disabled history. They talk about the vagabonds and they talk about the people pretending to be disabled for money. But that was literally where it stopped. And it got me thinking, well, how did disabled people, how were they treated in the past? Why have we got the attitudes towards disability we have now? Because we all learn and we all have the attitudes now because of past experience or what we've learned about the past. And... I've always been fascinated with the Tudor period in particular. And I thought, well, I'm a disabled person. Let's marry the two things together and see, you know, what it was actually like. You know, could I find out? And this is where my, my research started. And I've got such a passion for these stories to be told because it's often seen as a very taboo subject. People don't really want to discuss it because they don't want to think about their own mortality or perhaps, you know, the fact that they could easily become disabled through an accident or illness or something like that. It's not something people really want to think about. And it's, it's really sad because, you know, we shouldn't just be looking at things like Paralympians and what Paralympians do, because disabled people have got so much to offer and in fact, I think in a lot of cases, disabled people have got even more to offer because we are so much more stoic, determined, positive and want to get on with life because we've got no other choice. We've got so much to say and we deserve to be heard and our history deserves to be reclaimed. And that to me is what it's all about. I'm so passionate about it. I mean, people have seen me ranting on Twitter about different issues and things like that. But it's not about me saying, oh, poor me, I'm disabled. It's like, hang on a minute, I'm disabled, but look what I can do. Look how I can change attitudes. Look how I can help change people's thinking around it. And that, to me, is what it's all about. You know, I'm not just going to stop at the Tudors. I'm writing um, Disability in the Victorians at the moment. I'm looking more into ways I can bring disability history into public engagements. I want to do exhibitions. I want to have a museum for disability history. I want to be able to present documentaries on history disability, disability history, for example. I want it talked about so disability is not hidden away like it was after the Industrial Revolution. I want people to see how much disabled people have contributed to society over such a long period of time. Sorry, my, I stopped my rant now, but, you know, I'm just really passionate about it. Hey, if I wanted to stop your rant, I would have wrapped up the session. And, you know, um, <laughs> firstly, please come back and talk to us about disability during the Victorian period. We would love to do that. Um, secondly, if people haven't picked up on their passion, I don't know quite how they wouldn't have done. Um, then they need to go and re-listen to the last couple of minutes. 
Um, but quite importantly, you mentioned about how you know you're on social media. If people want to know a little bit more about your wider work, where can they find you? Um, I've got a website, philippavincentconnolly.com. Um, I'm on Twitter as Philippa JC. I've also got a Facebook page as a historian as well. My friend and I do a lot of Facebook lives to do with historical costume too, which gets lots of views because we're a bit like the hinge and bracket of <laughs> historical costumes. So we've got quite a big following on that and we get up to all sorts with that. Um, so, yeah, just... Just Google me and you'll find you'll find stuff. You'll find me. <laughs> Fantastic. And remind people about the book, where they can get it, etc. I'm going to throw in it's, that people listen, caveat about this, not Amazon. Very sorry, Jeff Bezos, but no profit for rocket fuel today. So where can they get it? Who published it? <laughs> title, all of that. Yeah, Disability in the Tudors is published by Pen and Sword Books. It's available on Pen and Sword's website in the UK and in the USA. So you can get it directly from them. If you want a signed copy of the hardback, I'm quite happy for a few people to ping me a message and say, could you send me one? And I'll do that as well. No problem. Fantastic. Philippa, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you for bringing your passion and all of your knowledge to this. It's been a brilliant episode. Thank you ever so much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.